so and then you know if she was in a very good mood then she would say you could actually be a decent writer and I thought that was the last thing I wanted to, to be was a decent writer you know I wanted to like be a real person hello 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 welcome to employee of the month I'm your host Katie Lazarus and on this episode I spoke with Martha Plimpton and Masha Gessen and I'm delighted to bring you these interviews because it has been such a painful year and it's so cathartic but also just helpful to have two people who have found ways to give back and also continue to be prolific in their own fields and are very human (laughs) and and recognize the challenges and also offer incredible insight in how to deal with them. First off is Martha Plimpton. You may recognize her from The Real O'Neills, The Guest Book, Good Wife, Raising Hope, and so many other shows, as well as movies, of course. Yes, Goonies, The River Rat, Mosquito Coast, Parenthood, and so many more. I discovered her actually in theater, and I, I've been a fan ever since. Glass Menagerie, Sisters Rosenzweig, and she also did The Coast of Utopia, um, in fact, the entire Tom Stoppard trilogy. She's also a model. We talk about her modeling career and how she deals when being burnt out. My plug is for A is Four, which is a nonprofit that Martha has worked with. They are an invaluable resource helping women and families uh, with abortion rights and the right to be able to have a medical procedure. And it's obviously an issue ultimately about class, ensuring that all women have access to abortion. So go to A is Four, A and then I-S-F-O-R dot org to find out how you can get involved or maybe even while you're listening to this fantastic interview with the one and only Martha Plimpton. It was recorded live at Aprons Art Center. Enjoy. Martha, thank you for coming Hi, back on the thanks show. thanks for having me back. I'm thrilled. I had just seen you perform at Joe's Pub and I... Was so happy to see you do your own works. Are you going to be doing more shows like that? Uh, I am because you've been acting since you were a baby, right? Since you got pretty out of the much, womb, yeah. While since you I was were about eight, yeah. I was so thrilled to see a picture of you not on stage, but as a as a as a kid. Oh God! Can you describe this for the podcast audience? You have um, on short shorts. Yeah, this is in this top. obviously a summertime picture. Uh, I, this is in our apartment that I grew up in. In Manhattan. In Manhattan uh, on 100th Street and, and West End Avenue. This is, a, a, I think I'm about six or seven in this picture maybe. So it would be around 76, 77. And uh, yeah, anyway, so that's that's where that picture was but taken. I, I like seeing a picture of you as a little kid where you're not on stage, but I did also want to share one of your first modeling gigs. I believe it's oh, one of God. your first modeling gigs. This is horrible. Um, for Calvin. And you, you even asked me if it would be okay, and I should have said no. Why didn't I say no? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Just show it. Just show it. It's a Calvin Klein Oh, ad. God. When it comes to competition, oh God. I am the worst. I go wacko. Please make it stop. When I compete or if I'm playing a game, I am very, very into winning. And if I don't, I really hold a grudge. I'm an incredibly sore loser. Calvin Klein jeans. But I'm an excellent winner. I really am. No, I really am. <laughs> Let's give Martha another Beautiful. round of applause for sitting through that. Oh, God. Why didn't I say no? <laughs> I know it's ridiculous and so embarrassing, um, but it was kind of cool because it was shot by Richard Avedon, who's wow. a very well-known, obviously, photographer. Um, so I got to work with him on those ads, which was very cool which makes that a very cool thing, despite the fact that it's so incredibly obnoxious. 
But part of the reason I wanted to show is that you, you've been acting for so long, and I was curious if you ever feel burnt out. Uh, yeah, all the time, actually. Uh, frequently. I frequently feel burnt out. Oh, my God. Anyway, <laughs> yes, I do get burnt out to, in answer to your question. And is that what inspired you to go to It's Africa? part of why I wanted to go to South Africa, yeah. I mean, I, my, I have a friend who lives there who's from there who was getting married, and I wanted to attend her wedding. But also, I've never been to, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. I've been to, to Egypt once before when I was very little with my dad, who's out there. Your dad's here? My dad's here, yeah. That's fantastic. Hi, Dad. Hi, Hi Dad. Can- Martha's dad, who's also a an, an tremendous actor. Um, so, uh, but I'd never been that far south, obviously. I mean, it's South Africa. It's the southern part. Jesus, what is wrong? I'm, I'm really, I'm completely thrown off by that commercial. Okay, well, so let's let's refresh anyway, and go anyway, back, back to Africa. To, let me let me just pretend that I have the confidence that I had as an eleven year old, um, I, I wish we and and restart this answer. Yeah, so that's why I went to South Africa. Um, and I figured while there, I would also you know go, go on safari and have that experience, which I've always wanted to do, and I love to travel. And uh, so I did it. We went for three weeks. I took my mother. It was a a birthday gift from my mother. Um, and I went with my friend, my another friend of mine, Eric, who's a great writer, who's a wonderful, funny writer, and it was amazing. And I, yeah, it was an extraordinary trip. Well, so these photos, I believe, were not taken by Richard Avedon. But no, you did, no, um, Eric took that one. I think, yeah, that's Eric- me with our rent lent. Oh, this is the first in a series. Yes, this is how you doing, baby? What's yeah. up? They're courting. Yeah, they met courting. on Tinder. Um, do you want to say what they are for the They're podcast? They're lions. So that's picture number one. If we move on to picture number two, there they are actually, actually making making love um, tenderly, which is tenderly. Ten- tenderly. She's a, a, she's a little distracted by something else that's going on. Well, it's a little like <clears throat> the Stormy Daniels. Uh, but this Trump. was actually this this happened on our uh, like uh, hour thirty of being in, on safari. It was like a, the, one of the first <laughs> things we saw. It was amazing, and even the the tracker guide who you know maybe he was full of it. I don't know. You know maybe they just say these. He says like, that he sees this is I I've worked here for years and I've never seen this. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So how long were you in South Africa? I was there for three weeks, and it was extraordinary. And I actually turns out I'm I'm going to go back. Because it turns out I'm, I kind of have a little bit of a knack for this tracking thing, this animal tracking, the wildlife tracking, I and I really <laughs> fell in love with it. You mean in so, terms of tracking who's humping? Well, yeah. I mean, if they happen to be around and, and humping, you, you'll you'll find that through your 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 senses and your connection to the earth and the wind direction and sound and and tracks in the mud or in the sand or the dirt. The signs. I know. I know all the difference between white and black rhino dung. It's really fascinating stuff. So I'm going back to study it. Actually. Oh wow! In in the fall, I'm going to go back and and take a, a, a course and everything and learn how to do it, so that I could take <laughs> oh, any of you who wanted to go. I could take you. I think we all do. And and I could show you how to tell the difference between black rhino dung and and white rhino dung. I can tell the difference between a brown hyena track and a spotted hyena track. How many of you can do that? <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of cool. It's incredible. So I was excited to hear that, that you went away because you've been in so many productions in theater, film, television that I could only imagine that you would get, get burnt out. And one of the things I wow. wanted to... These are just some of them. I yeah, mean, I, yeah. I couldn't list all of them. But one thing that I, I have noticed that your singing career has been 
you're such an exceptional singer and you've Thank done you. Sondheim to your own stuff. And I was curious if you'll be doing more music. Yes. We did this show. Um, I'm a huge Amy Mann fan. And so I wanted to find a way to get people to pay me to sing her songs in front of them. So I decided to sort of do a show for President's Day to celebrate the very solemn holiday of President's Day in this country by doing all Amy Mann songs and dedicating each one to a different president and exploring our relationships to our presidents um, in much the same way we explore, you know, the, the wreckage of our personal lives, the romantic lives, which I'm very familiar with, that wreckage. And so I called the show I'm With Stupid, All the President's Man. But I'm With Stupid, of course, is one of, one of her records. And, uh, and so we did it, and we're going to do it again at Bard at the Spiegel Tent Summerfest this summer, doing the show again with my musical director, Dan Lipton, and, and Lucy Wainwright-Roach is going to come up and do, and do some stuff with us again. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And Justin Vivian Bond is the curator Yes, first, the sort of curator and, you know, the person who sort of runs the whole, or sort of the, the ringleader of the whole sort of thing, I think. Yeah. I'm just plugging the Employee of the Month podcast. You can listen to past episodes with Justin Vivian Bond as well as Martha Plimpton. <laughs> I got you a couple things. I know that you have two homes, so I got Mind Your Manners. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Talk about puns and cheese. Uh, oh, good. Too. Okay, um, good. And then I got you a book about Vivian Mayer. Oh, I love her. Yes. I kind of want you to do a yes, movie where you crazy, might star her. crazy, wonderful, weird woman. And some weird dog woman. gifts and Russ and Daughters. Okay. Um, oh, oh, thank you very much. Yes. And then Make Trouble from Cecile Oh, Richards, great. Oh, fantastic. Who you know very well and worked with, as well yeah. as some treats from Russ and Daughters. And here are the illustrations that were also oh, done well, by okay. Ella. And there's one that I think was spinning before. Oh, very, Lucy. very rosy cheek. Thank you. Isn't she fabulous? And if you come to the live shows, and our next one is December 1st at the Bell House, you often get to see the guests perform. And Martha Plimpton is an extraordinary singer, and she actually did this wonderful collaboration with Amy Mann and Lucy Wainwright-Roche. I want to just do a shout-out for Lucy Wainwright-Roche, who's an exceptional musician in her own right. But the two of them often perform together. And if you come December 1st at the Bell House in Brooklyn to see Employee of the Month live, who knows you're going to get to see perform. In fact, our next guest, Masha Gessen, who is best known as a formidable journalist, a National Book Award winner, prolific author and translator and activist, also knows her herring under the fur coat. And we did a taste test. Again, December 1st at the Bell House, you'll get to see these enjoyable moments of <laughs> these exceptional people just being human and having fun. That said, I'm so delighted to bring you our interview because Masha talks about how she manages to write for The New Yorker twice a week and teach at Amherst and somehow get these marvelous books done. I do want to do a particular plug for, want to say on a personal note, that she has managed to be able to be active about what she cares about without ever compromising her level of objectivity. And in fact, she's added more nuance and color by acknowledging it. And I certainly hope that others can learn from her because I did. Here's my interview with Masha Gessen. I had written down, but I don't know if this is true. Were you the first journalist to be blacklisted by Putin? I believe I was. Yes. <laughs> I was so, so thrilled to hear that you, you have four generations before you that were journalists. Is that what inspired you to be a bike messenger at one point? <laughs> first, it inspired me to be a gas station attendant. Where were you a gas station attendant? In Boston. Is that, okay, so that was the first time you, ca you came as a, as a kid. Right, right. I was, I 
dropped out of high school and became a gas station attendant. Is that true? Yes. And then I became a bicycle messenger, which was actually my lifelong dream to be a bicycle messenger. (laughs) It's remarkable to me to hear about like five generations of journalists in your family. I thought that was really interesting to hear about. And, And I wanted to ask for you, like, in all seriousness, the idea to me of having parents who are journalists and grandparents, you know, that I would... I would imagine one would go off and become a gas station attendant. Well, see, I I wanted to make something of myself. And and the way that my mother talked about it, she would say, you know, if you don't succeed, you can always fall back on writing. And if she was in a bad mood, then she would say, if you keep just doing everything and not focusing on anything, you'll end up being a translator. Like your aunt. And that was, you know, that just seemed like a horrible prospect. Um, yeah. So, and then, you know, if she was in a very good mood, then she would say, you could actually be a decent writer. And I thought that was the last thing I wanted to to be was a decent writer. You know, I wanted to, like, be a real person, you know, who did something useful. (laughs) (laughs) And you have translated books as well. I I love translating more than anything in the world, actually. It's an amazing thing to be able to do. It's It's like you go into a trans. It's actually much more pleasurable than writing. Writing, you know, as most people know it can be painful and yes. torturous and you know all sorts of things but but translating you are trying to turn words that are already there in a rhythm that's already there into a similar rhythm in a different language and it's like magic it, i mean it really is an incredible process how many languages do you speak two two so it's russian and, and english two and a half russian english and hebrew and or serbian and serbian yes very nice I don't speak any, so you could talk to me in Serbian, and I'll have no idea what you're saying. You wouldn't you. know that I only speak, you know, maybe a quarter. Um, somehow you managed to, to write so prolifically. And I was curious, how do you, just logistically, like, how many hours a day do you write? Because you also teach, and I think you teach far, far away, or is that in I, Amherst? I teach in Amherst, yeah. yeah. And you bike, so I assume you have to bike there and back. <laughs> it's a long ride. <laughs> just curious, like, how much time in a day do you block off just for, for writing? It's not going to make me or anyone else more brilliant, but I'm just curious. I don't. I, my contract at the New Yorker requires me to write two columns a week. Okay. So fortunately, I don't have a choice about it. I just have to write two columns a week. But you know, I, if I weren't writing those columns, then I, I I'd be channeling that anxiety in some other way. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actually very grateful for that for that contract. But when I'm writing a book, I try to block off five hours a night. So from about eleven o'clock in the evening until five, uh, 4 o'clock in the morning. That's, oh. that's when I write. I think everyone can relate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to that. I, I once had a magazine ask to, um, to follow me around for a day of working. And I said, you know, that's going to be really strange. First you have to, like, bike with me for two hours. And then is that go, what you do in the morning? That's that's what I do during the morning is not a time of day that. Uh, <laughs> so far, the only thing we share in common. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in the afternoon, I'll, I'll, I'll when I can, I'll bike for a couple hours and then and then I'll write from 11 in the evening until four in the morning. And I just imagine this poor magazine writer observing <laughs> me standing at my desk for five hours from 11 o'clock at night uh, and then writing a piece about it. So I was wondering if you could tell the story and I don't know if this you could pull this off, this stunt off now, but I really loved hearing about um, how you got your visa, how you went about getting it. The f- <laughs> Where do you get this stuff? Okay, but the like, fax machine? What kind of archaeological dig? <laughs> the fax machine? The fax, the fax machine. machine. Yeah. Well, so, 
I don't know if I should be telling the story out okay. in public, actually. So the first time I wanted to go back to the Soviet Union was in, it was still the Soviet Union, it was, it was early 1991. And there was going to be a feminist conference there. They weren't calling it feminist, that, w- that would have been too risky. They were calling it an independent women's conference. And they were going to invite a dozen foreign guests. And so I knew someone else who was going, actually a couple of people. And they said they put me on the list. And then the list came by Telex from Moscow to be taken to the, uh, to the consulate. And my name wasn't on the list. And so we wrote to them and asked them by fax and, uh, and asked them to, uh, to, to send us an invitation. And they sent the invitation again. And again, my name wasn't on the list. And that this is probably not an accident. They're probably afraid to invite an, em- an emigre to this conference. So I thought, but, you know, the telex just looked so telexy. I, um, I thought I can do that. <laughs> so I typed it up and faxed it to myself. Uh, because because the, what, what a telex looks like, it goes to, I mean, when there were telexes, they would go to telex agencies and the telex agency would send you a fax that would say, you have received a telex. And then would have the text of the telex. So I sent the same thing to myself, and it just, you know, it had all the other names and my name. And that's how I, I got a visa. But then I needed to get the visa extended. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I had to go to the people who didn't invite me. Amazing. <laughs> and say, you invited me. Could oh, you wow. extend my visa? And it actually worked because they were too embarrassed to, to admit <laughs> that, they, that they had not invited me. So there was like five minutes of silence, and then they they said, yes, we did. We invited you. <laughs> I also just wanted to ask, with so t- I know that you've met with Putin once, but you are s- such a phenomenal writer in how you translate and communicate what's going on. But what is it like when you have such little access to someone to be able to write about them in depth? You know, I'm thinking like, Gorbachev, I, there was um, William Taupman, I want to say. He's a, yeah. So, you know, he got to meet with Gorbachev like eight or nine times. And you had one meeting and it was after you had been writing about well, it. was after I him. wrote the book. Yeah, <laughs> yes. they, they didn't do a lot for the book. So I, I actually, um, several books and a lot of articles that I've written have been what, what journalists call write-arounds. Uh, okay. So it's actually when you, and I, I think of it as writing around the hole. Like there's a hole where information should be and you're like trying to define the, the shape of the hole. And in some ways, it's actually really good because you're not beholden to some one person's narrative of who they are. And there's no one less reliable as a source of information on themselves. Than I can think of one person. Mom. Trump. That too. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean, no one should be, no one is a good person for telling about themselves. Yes. Um, and, um, so, and also, once you enter into a relationship with somebody uh, to write about them, it creates, you know, there's a relationship that's also, that also becomes a part of the book, and that can be wonderful, but it can actually be great to not have that relationship. And so I've, I've written several books. I've, I wrote a book about a mathematician who wouldn't talk to me, which I didn't realize at the time that I started writing the book that he wouldn't talk to me. It's the, it's the only book of mine that's been translated into Russian, and I still ma- it's a book about mathematicians. It's the one that's not about politics, and still I managed to get into trouble because, because I, I, I said that this this the greatest mathemati- Russian mathematician in history was gay. Um, and I wrote a book about Putin. I wrote a book about the Tsarnaev brothers, the Boston yes. bombers, you know, and I had no access to them. And it was unfolded. I mean, you wrote the book so qu- quickly, you know, considering. To, yeah. to, to an outsider, it seemed very quick. Uh, I don't think my publisher thought it was very quick. <laughs> <laughs>
you have so much self-awareness when, when I read your books and it's something that isn't taught to journalists. And even like when I look at like doctors, when you read the Hippocratic Oath, it's rather vague. And I was just curious, do you feel like in journalism, is, is there a sort of equivalent now, particularly because people aren't necessarily trained at institutions? You know, you can, the beauty that anyone can be a writer is also the danger that anyone can be a writer. And I was curious when you're like teaching your students, do you go over anything in terms of guidelines? I teach uh, what's thought of generally as critical journalism studies. And so one of my students the other day... That is such a liberal arts... That is a great liberal arts title. Well, Amherst is, Amherst <laughs> is sort of opposed to pre-professional studies, which of I think course. is wonderful. And, <laughs> yeah. um, but, but so one of my students uh, in this course that I, uh, that I have, and you know, we're nearing the end of the course, was doing a presentation. And he says, and of course, the American mo model of journalism has failed, which is the topic of this course. When he was done, I sort of... One up in front of the class, and I said, you know, I want to clarify something. <laughs> I mean, actually, the fact that we get to criticize this, and 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 we can devote an entire course to talking about, um, you know, how American media uh, covered the 2016 campaign, shows that there's something there, and and it's the, an incredibly successful something, and a robust something, and probably the best journalism in the history of the world, which is, you know, which it gets to be in part because we criticize it. But no, it has not failed. But um. That's a long way of answering. I um, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, should I go back to to to, to short answer? No. Go back to long. Go back to long. Go back to long. <laughs> go back to in depth. <laughs> I screwed myself. Um, one of, one of the wonderful things I did learn from you was about how sociology and psychology have been completely wiped out. And I was thinking about, you know, reading 19th century Russian literature, for example. I was uh, doing a doctorate in clinical psych before I became a non-famous writer and talk show host. And um, <laughs> it was so remarkable in how much I learned from it. And so I was so sad to hear that that seems like that would be wiped out of the population that's there now. Can you talk a little bit about the brain drain, both how it pertains to your own work when you're writing about Russia? Who do you even connect with there to find out what's going on because you're here. And if you've seen that impact as well in terms of Russians you meet. So that's my, my, uh, my book, The Future's History, is largely about that. It's about how a society that's been robbed of the tools of knowing itself can't move forward and can't talk to itself about itself. So I follow a psychoanalyst and a sociologist and to an extent a philosopher to sort of try to trace that that lack of intellectual history through their personal intellectual histories. But yeah, what happened was that after the revolution, uh, the Bolsheviks were convinced that, first of all, they're creating new new man who was going to be shaped entirely by the material conditions of living in new society and was going to exist in perfect harmony with new society. So like, why would you need psychology if uh, everything's, everything's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> and if every, if everything is not fine, then, then there's a pathology that's either criminal pathology or psych, uh, psychiatric pathology and you have institutions for that, but there's no such thing as inner conflict yeah. that's possible and acceptable in that kind of society. And, you know, um, 50 years later, they started diagnosing people with schizophrenia for have, harboring the delusion that their actions can change society. And in a sense, that was true in that society. That was a delusion. Uh, and it was not normal. I feel like it's hard to live with uncertainty. 
that that's something that is is challenging and it can be challenging either because society has zero expectations or it can be challenging on the flip side i was using the states because the expectation that everything's going to work out well actually it won't unless you take care of it um and even then it may or may not no i think that um i mean that's actually what i'm trying to write about now is um trying to write a book uh, a book about visions of the future and about people who are working on imaginative projects like actually existing imaginative projects that that reflect a certain vision of the future that's not entirely grounded in in the imaginary past which is where we're hurtling yeah i was wondering it, it, I, now that everyone's writing about russia if you were either a tired of it because you've written so prolifically about it or b like ah eh, everyone's doing this i want to do something new no that wasn't um that's not why i'm not writing a book about russia right now uh and it's not even why i keep trying to not write about russia uh although that's you know that's going a little bit less successfully the idea was that the new yorker i wouldn't be writing about russia but i think probably a third of my columns end up being about russia but um i i spent 20 years writing about more than 20 years writing about russia no i mean i i went there as a correspondent in 91 and i left in yeah. 2013 and then i i wrote this book that came out last year so that's that whole time i've been writing about russia i kind of thought that uh, there comes a point in every American journalist's uh, career uh, after they've been to Russia when they come back and they write the Russia book to end all Russia books. And so there was, you know, one of those comes out every couple of years. I thought it was my turn. I wrote this, this tome. And it was actually the most enjoyable book I've ever written. The Future is History. The Future is History. I mean, I, I know that sounds a little strange because it's so bleak, but it's, um, but I really, it really sounds enjoyed. very Russian. Uh, yeah, that's, so in that sense, you know, it was, it, 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 it was a reflection of my soul. But I really, really enjoyed writing it. And I thought, I never want to stop. I just want to keep writing this book. And then I got to the end, and I never thought about it again. Wow. It was just over. Uh, it, it, it was finished. It gave me great pleasure. And I feel like, I've yes, I've, I don't know if it's the Russia book to end all Russia books, but it, but it kind of ends Russia books for me. Well, it was a beautiful love affair in that sense you know, that you were able to enjoy yeah, it, it an and let it go. Right. <laughs> you've written about Stalin, you've written about Putin, you've written about, you know, your own family's genetic history with cancer. I was curious as to how you were surviving when writing about the gulags in your most recent book, Never Remember. Uh, it just, nah. it just seems like it's been really painful you're, to write about and live with. Was that your experience or no? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, sorry, no. It, uh, it was um, painful to read about. It was it was extraordinarily was, painful to sit with. That was uh, that was the intention. I'm I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think writing is a great pain relief, especially you know, like when Trump was elected, and and when you know when 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 the political crackdown became began in Russia, and when the war in Chechnya began, and all, all the horrible things that I've written about. Uh, if I didn't have writing, if I couldn't actually put it into words and at least have the illusion that I was doing something about it by writing about it, I would feel utter despair all the time. Yeah. As it is, I can pass this despair on to other people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Success. <laughs> One of your more recent pieces that I read about the deportation of someone in the U.S. Speaking of despair. Yeah was so well done and I highly recommend people read it in the New Yorker. I wanted to ask like how do you stay in touch with people you've written about? Sometimes. I mean I'm not very good at staying in touch with people <laughs> in general. that I haven't written about. Why is that? <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> can always ask. <laughs> we, we were perfect to go to Antioch College in the 90s. <laughs> I asked permission. You said no. It may have something to do with being very productive and prolific. It could be having three children also helps. <laughs> I did want to ask uh, one last serious question. That was about, you, you had said something about journalists, that it's important for them to not be activists. Do you, am I, sorry. I, I think I said the opposite, actually. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, good. Can you tell me why you think it's important for them to be activists? Weren't you going to ask me the opposite question? Well, no, I was going to actually <laughs> yeah. ask you that it, it's a challenge because the when one is objective, I think there's a there can be a tendency to also be complicit. Right. With, with, whether it's, you know, I don't think it's ill-intentioned, but I think mm-hmm. that there is that tendency or that there potential. Is. I mean, and you can't, you can't solve it just by deciding to be an activist. I mean, first of all, uh, we're, we're going to do a little bit of critical journalism studies now. So the concept of objectivity is actually not what people think it is. It's not like having, taking a question and using sources that we pretend are equidistant from this, from this particular position and giving them equivalency. That's not the idea behind objectivity. The idea behind objectivity appeared in the 20s, 30s, when sort of uh, there was a group of journalists who wanted to see American journalism become more like American science writing, where a, a, a reportage would be like an experiment and you could replicate it. And so the conceit is that if you, asked, if you went to all the same people and you asked them all the same questions, then you would get the same results, you'd get the same story. So that's why you name sources. That's why you, sh- you make it very clear how you report. That's what objectivity is. Objectivity is not like being impartial. Objectivity is not, you know, not letting human beings write about human beings, which is sort of the logical extreme of this idea that you're not supposed to write about things that you're personally invested in. And I think that you absolutely should be writing about things you're personally invested in, because otherwise, why would you be writing about them? So I think that what objectivity actually demands is transparency of point of view and transparency of sourcing and that you can absolutely do while being an activist. I mean, there, there, you know, there are other issues of, with being an activist, which is that you, tend, you may have a tendency to sort of burrow too deeply into an issue, and it's hard to zoom out enough to write about it. But that's almost a technical problem. That's not, you know, that's not a problem with, with actually conceptualizing journalism. Well, and what you're touching on and ex- explaining so thoughtfully is what I was trying to bring up before about the guidelines. And because... The positive of going up and working at institutions is that they have guidelines. If you work at the New Yorker, the fact-checking, as you mentioned, and things like that. And I was just curious now as to how how can people do that when they are their lives are affected by the issues and there is a more self-awareness. It's not that they weren't before, but there's greater – I don't even want to just say self-awareness about that, but a general awareness. I mean, the guidelines – the thing about guidelines is that, you know, they're not laws. Yeah. Uh, and But they don't – even – Guidelines don't exist at a lot of the news organizations. But I, yeah, I'm not sure guidelines are such a great thing. I mean, again, okay. like fact-checking is something – you can't try argue about facts, right? And you can argue about opinions. And guidelines are a little bit more in the realm of opinion than they are in the realm of facts. And I, there's actually a huge difference between fact-checking and accuracy and this sort of, these sort of ideas of objectivity. And, you know, there's still a lot of legacy media, you know, will not let their – reporters vote, right? right? which I think is insane. Like, what business do you have writing about politics if you're not being a citizen? Yeah. 
or March uh, or any of these things. Yeah, right. Or March. Um, but but you know, go back to you know the 1980s and gay reporters weren't allowed to write about AIDS. In the 1960s, black reporters weren't allowed to. The few black reporters who existed in the legacy media, you know, weren't weren't allowed to write about the civil rights movement. I, you know, now we think about that and we think it's nutty. Right. And right. I think that's a really good thing to keep in mind when we talk about sort of impartiality today. One of the things that I really want to encourage people to do is to read The Futurist History because I, I, loved, I loved how you explored intergenerational trauma and how it can be both within the family but systems in, in general. And what we are inheriting, in fact, is we already had inherited it, but I don't know if everyone was as aware here. Thank you. That's, that's great that you said that because, you know, I set out to write a book about intergenerational trauma and I kept thinking, I'm going to get to the point in the book when I explain that it's intergenerational trauma, but I never did. <laughs> I should confess, so, I dropped out of my doctorate in clinical psych, so you got to the point where I had in my degree. <laughs> so we're good there. I wanted to um, give you some, some gifts before you go. First of all, our illustrator, Ella, who came in from Colorado, made this illustration of great. you. And I know it, it's a little higher than the National Book Award to get the Employee of the Month Award. So you can keep that at your desk. And it's so bright that it can also serve as a nightlight <laughs> for you. And we will put that online on Slate's book site. Because you grew up in a communist country, I do not expect you to join the Park Slope co-op. <laughs> You've dealt with it enough. But I brought you some babka from... Oh, Russ and Dars, actually, I'm giving you the wrong Park Slope co-op bag. I apologize. Here's a smaller one because you biked here. And then I got you this book. I don't know if you've already read it from Alison Bechdel, Are You My Mother? You know what? I, I read it and I gave my copy away. So that's actually wonderful. Oh, it is? giving me a copy. Yes, okay, thank good. you. Oh, I'm no, so no, I thrilled. gave it away to a friend and, I, and, I, and it's one of those books that I, you know, I actually want to have around. Oh, I'm so pleased because thank I contacted you. Alison and said, do you know Masha? I didn't know how small uh, New England is. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> And she said, and I said, what happens if she has 173 copies? Do you think it'll be okay if she has 174? And she said she thought it would be. I hope whatever you write about that you continue to have a very fertile career. <laughs> and that this but light. no more children, please. <laughs> uh, Career-wise, I am, it's such a privilege to be able to read your work. And you do such an expert job at both translating what is and offering new insight into what can be. So thank you very much. Thank Masha you very Gesson. much. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank Abrams Art Center, Faith Smith, Daniel Schrader, Jessamine Molly, and I want to give a special shout out to my band, Andrew, Jelly D. Bancroft, Chris, Shockwave Sullivan, Camille Harris, Justin Carroll, Factory, and Russ and Daughters, our wonderful sponsors. And to all of you who listened, if you enjoyed this episode, please give it a high rating on iTunes. And I hope to see you at the Employee of the Month show December 1st at the Bell House. You can go to the Employee of the Month show website to find out more. I rarely send out emails. Uh, I try to send them out without too many typos. And I hope that you are finding ways to both give back, take care of yourselves, and also find time to nurture the little special snowflake. I'm Katie Lazarus. Have a good one. All right, all right, all right, all right. Yo, rewind the show, y'all. Everybody back up. It's time for the Employee of the Month wrap up. They'll come out and then they'll hold their plaques up. It's time for the Employee of the Month rip wrap up. 
Guess number one taught us all a lesson. The brilliant, resilient Masha Gessen. Rock the system, rock the institution. You're a friend of ours, not a friend of Putin. Aspiring journalists should follow in your tracks. Everybody go home and fax yourself a fax. We love the work you do and fight your fighting. Now isn't it time for you to do five hours of writing? All right, Masha, hold your plaque up. It's time for guest number two's rip, rip, wrap up. Guest two made me blush plus other symptoms. Maybe my crush on Martha Plimpton. We love your candid talk, no rehearsal. We even loved your Calvin Klein commercial. Expounding on subjects with fascination, from African lemons to lion copulation. Your acting's amazing, you're singing rad. Gotta thank who made you. Props to your dad. All right, Masha, hold your plaque up. That's everybody's employee of the month wrap up. Now drink your drinks and spark your blood to give it up for the employees of.